Hi, everyone. It's Coco here, your host of Conversations with Coco and Friends. I know, I know we're still on a show break, but we just really need to be enjoying that vitamin D right now. If I can recommend anything, it's to get outside. But while we are recording some really amazing new content for you, I'm encouraging you to go back into our catalog and check out our past episodes. And today I'm recommending the episode with Shanae Ingleton-Smith. She went from working in the corporate world to becoming a full-time influencer to then becoming a full company that now represents Represents some of the biggest influencers in the world. You're going to love it. Shanae is incredible. Enjoy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On today's conversation, we'll explore how Shanae went from leaving corporate to going back to corporate to leaving again to creating one of the most sought-after influencer management agencies representing women of color, Kensington Gray. Get ready to be inspired. And if you're looking to become an influencer or even grow your business's following on social media, get your notepad ready. We are so damn excited to be sitting down with the Toronto Shay, aka Shanae Ingleton Smith. I can assure you that there will be some major takeaways from this conversation. So get your pens and paper or iPhone or tablet or whatever you do to take notes ready. Mm-hmm. Shanae is honestly one of the OG bloggers in Toronto, and now we've seen her grow exponentially on the gram through her curated app feed and purposeful messaging. I guess we should start with how you even became an influencer. Tell us everything. Okay. Thank you for that intro. How did I become an influencer? So it's sort of like two parts. And um, Katrina's probably, she's was there to witness uh, both <laughs> parts, actually. So like years ago, like 15 years ago, like before like Instagram, anything, I started a blog. I worked in finance and going to work every day was not my thing. <laughs> and it was super conservative. And so I started like a blog to just, you know, share my love for just everything lifestyle. So from fashion to beauty to whatever. I also used it as an opportunity to shed light on like different women that inspired me. And from that, it led to like a biannual or quarterly slash whenever event where a bunch of women in Toronto would, you know, get together and shop and, you know, just hang out and, you know, do the things that like women like to do. And then there would be like a select group of four hot guys giving out like gift bags. <laughs> we so love that. Yeah. So that was fun. And, um, you know, that was sort of like my, I guess, first foray into 
cultivating a community. And it was like social media before the term was properly coined. So it was like the MySpace days and like the high five days, that sort of thing. So that's what I did. And I loved it. And I loved it so much that I actually ended up leaving my job for like a year before running out of money and going back into the corporate world. But I loved it so much that, you know, I wanted to pursue it full time. And that's sort of how I learned, you know, everything that I know now about writing and connecting with other people and connecting with women and, you know, creating a community and cultivating a community. And then I met my then boyfriend and now husband, Sean, and he worked in media. And he thought that, you know, what I was doing in like with the events and with What Women Want is what it was called, uh, was super cool. But I was kind of like over it. I didn't like working from home anymore. I didn't like the isolation and everything that everyone's talking about now. Mm -hmm. I experienced that like, you know, over 10 years ago. And I was like, I'm ready to like go back into the corporate world and like learn like the business side to like do this right. So I started finding jobs in media. So I found a job in for like a small media conglomerate and it was a job where I'd have to sell advertising into like these newspapers and like people used to hang up the phone on me. It was like one of those things like that nobody ever like wanted. Selling something that nobody wants is actually a great way to learn how to sell. From there, I was there for a year and then I got a job at McLean's Magazine at Rogers Media. And then that sort of like began my career in media. And that's where I learned like the traditional media and the behind the scenes stuff. But yeah, so at near the tail end of my career, um, traditional media started to leverage social media. And from there, that's um, how I kind of started to get my interest again in social media. A lot of my friends, you know, became bloggers like Sasha Exeter and um, Monica Alway. And I was like seeing what they were doing and I was like, hey, this is kind of cool. I could see myself doing this. So um, after getting married, I got pregnant with Kensington. And when I was at home on mat leave, I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to give this a try. And then that's how I got started in social media as we know it now, like the whole Instagram influencer thing again. So you answered my question. <laughs> <laughs> we, we learned the whole journey and we needed that. No, no like so many people don't know where you came from or the experience that yeah. you had, like even working at McLean's, that's super cool that you had that perspective in everything that you do as well. I think it was, it, it's really key to know that you, when you did What Women Want, it really was like you were living a social media experience, but in real life, like, you know, you had the touch points from you could try uh, all this, all these beauty brands, you could have a drink from these alcohol brands, you could buy clothes from local vendors, but it was like taking everything that wasn't really online then yet, but bringing it all into one space. And it's kind of exactly what you do um, with your social media now is that you show people all these different products and, and things in such a way that feels very natural. So it doesn't feel like sell, sell, sell. Well, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> you said it way better than I did. I no, no, like. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> no. Um, and you, you've just been really good at being like on the nose with trending stuff and, and taking that. So I think what's interesting about you and what people also need to understand is that you it's a big buildup. It's like, it's not like you just turned on your Instagram and it's like 60,000 followers. It's like it took time to get there and a lot of knowledge in different fields. How do you think publishing and selling advertising helped you position you for the place you are now? So, um, you know, having the behind the scenes knowledge on how to like 
pitch brands, who the brands were, where the decision makers were, etc. I found that was like one of my biggest assets going into the social media world again. So when I first started again, I knew nothing and I had like, I think 2000 followers and I connected immediately with other influencers that, you know, were further ahead in the game. And we started a Facebook group called The Glow Up. And right from the very, very beginning, I made sure that it was a group that we could, you know, it was a safe space where we could speak candidly about things. And my thing in life is always, I try to appeal to people's interests. I knew with influencers that, you know, they're good at creating, they're build a, you know, good, great at uh, building a community and, and building a following, but they weren't always as good at the business side. And I knew the business side and had that part down pat. And my best friend who I started the group with, Tanya, she also had connections like with Fashion Week and she lived in New York and, you know, she had, um, you know, PR contacts, et cetera. So we created this group and we invited other, you know, Black women influencers to the group and we shared information candidly. So about, you know, what to charge, who's spending right now, um, how to get into Fashion Week, how to pitch yourself to brands, you know, what brands are with what agencies, what, you know, brands, you know, operate client direct. And so that information that I had that a lot of people like sort of keep in like silos or like hoard, that information, I shared that just like openly and freely. And I still do that to this day. And I think that that helped me cultivate and build a lot of the relationships that I have with people in the industry and led to people trusting me with, you know, helping them with deals and negotiating deals. And a lot of Actually, most of my first clients with the agency that I have now, um, they actually came from that group. And that was never the intention, but just, you know, putting that information out there, showing that I was capable and, you know, knew what to do led me to, you know, build trust with other influencers and uh, and led to, you know, what I'm doing now as the co-founder of the agency and the head of influencer talent with uh, Kensington Gray. I mean, I think that is the perfect segue into my question. So I feel like a lot of what you're talking about is just trusting your gut, trusting your intuition. Um, And I guess the real question is, how did you know that it was time to leave your corporate job um, and transition into agency and that that was the right move to make? So I, it was a really tough decision for me because I actually really, really loved my job. Like I loved what I did at um, Rogers Media. So I started off at McLean's and, you know, every year my role kind of expanded to include like different areas of the business from like Flair to City Line to Breakfast Television to Kiss 92 to whatever. And I just loved like, you know, pitching things and, you know, you know, taking brands budgets and spending them, you know, internally with um, our brands. And I was sort of scared that when I left, you know, my corporate job at Rogers that I wouldn't be able to like fully translate that into something that would be successful, like as an individual. But um, the easy decision for me was, um, you know, financially as an influencer, I was able to, within that first year after coming back from mat leave, pretty much match my income that I was making at Rogers. So I was like, okay, so money isn't an issue. I have like a stream of income. So like, what are you waiting for? So I would have like several conversations with my boss about it because she was super actually supportive of like the fact that I was an influencer. And um, she's like, you know, just go for it. And so I did. I just, I went for it. And actually one of the first, so Coco had a little like round table discussion. Um, I think it was at the Lemonade, Mm -hmm. um, the Lemonade co-working space. Make Lemonade. Yeah. And that's when I was like first 
thinking about it and what to do at the time. I was still actually working at Rogers. And, um, you know, I just like looked to and asked questions of people that I respected and admired. And, you know, Coco being one of them, you know, as a successful entrepreneur. And um, yeah, and then we just kind of like went for it. And the at the time, right at that time or shortly thereafter, uh, Forbes uh, wrote a story on Forbes.com about the glow up. And that actually resulted in several women approaching me, asking me to manage them. And so before when people used to come to me and ask, I was like, no, it's fine. Like, I, I'll just help you out. But then when they like were formally approaching me, asking me to manage them, I was like, okay, yeah, I think I can. So I started managing people and it got really, really busy to the point where I had to like go to Sean, my husband, and be like, I need help. Like, I can't do this on my own. So he actually saw like the numbers and saw like how things were working out. And then I was also, you know, still doing my influencer thing. And he was like, okay, let's, you know, let's take a chance at this. Let's do this. So he left his job and he helped me. So we kind of split like the responsibilities 50-50 and like we started like managing influencers. Now he does more of like the operations and like the finance side of things. But yeah, so that's the story. Wowie. And then how many years ago did Kensington Gray open? It has been, I think, a year and a half. So fairly new. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, I hear you speaking about cultivating your community and you've done such a great job at that and just knowing your audience. But how does one with only a thousand followers go about building and growing their following organically on Instagram? For me, I'm a like information junkie. So like I was reading all the books, I was joining all the webinars because during this time I was home on mat leave. So uh, I... I'm Jamaican, so I've always had like five jobs. <laughs> so like being at home for a year on mat leave was like, oh my God, I have all this time on my hands. So um, I was like listening to webinars. I was, you know, we were doing stuff in the group and asking each other questions on like what works for you. I was also watching, you know, what other influencers that were successful, what they were doing versus the ones that weren't. So for me, one of the things that I definitely did was I made sure I treated like all like of my online interaction as like real interaction. So I responded to every single DM that I got. I responded to every single comment um, that people left for me. I made sure to like engage with people too, with all the people that I followed with. I made sure like I left like genuine and authentic comments, etc. I also made sure to reach out to people. Like I noticed that everything was super like competitive and individual. And I was like, why are people like not like hanging out with each other? So I would <laughs> reach out to people. I'd be like, hey, like, do you want to like do a shoot together? Or I noticed like you're on this campaign and we're on this campaign together. Like, why don't we just shoot it together? Like, I have a cool idea. Like, let's shoot it together. I literally like would DM people that like I didn't know. Like one of, um, one, she's a good friend of mine now, but at the time I didn't know her, Lily Yang. I was like, she's like so awesome, like so gorgeous. I just like slid up into her. One day she was doing a live and I just like was commenting and like responding to her questions on the live and I slid into her DMs and I was like, let's shoot together. Like, let's hang out. Like literally. So I started like creating like this little subgroup of like influencer friends and we started shooting with each other we started sharing information together we were I invited them all to the group and we were sharing knowledge so it was like exponential like we started to 
all elevate ourselves and elevate our following just from all the knowledge that we shared. So like things like hashtags, and this is a thing, Instagram changes like almost like on a monthly basis. So like what worked back then literally like would not work now. Right now, I th- my advice to anybody who wants to grow is to like do reels for one, um, because I find that the algorithm is favoring reels right now and they're f- favoring like snackable, thumb stoppable and shareable content that is inspiring and educational, but like not too like long form or lengthy. And um, also too, the influencers on our roster that have the most momentum and that grow the most are active on more than one platform. So in Instagram is like great, they do well, they have great engagement, et cetera, lots of followers. However, the influencers that grow the most are the ones that are also on TikTok or they're also on YouTube or they have like a podcast or they have some other highly engaged platform that they um, are very active on that is driving organic uh, eyeballs to their page. So so that's how I would recommend that people grow. And, and also too, like make sure that every single time that you post, you're adding value to the people that that are following you into your community. So if you're just kind of like posting things just to post like that, that used to work. Like when everything was perfect and people had like perfect grids and like things were like black and white and like there was like <laughs> all the flat lays that came about. <laughs> yes, all that, that, I mean, unless like if the flat lay is like super like inspiring, like that stuff doesn't like really like resonate as much. And then also too, like, you know, find out what your unique quality is and like really like tap into that. So like, you know, and when a, a great way to find out what your unique quality is, is to think like, what do your friends come to you for when they want advice? Like, so what what do your friends consider you to be the expert on? And that could be, you know, whatever. It could be cooking. It could be how to dress. It could be business advice. It could be like anything. So yeah, so tap into your unique quality and then also to stay in your lane. But I don't mean that in like not try new things, but like do what you're really good at. Don't try to like be something that like you're not like, so don't like, because you see like Tezza doing this or Ami Song doing that, like you don't, don't feel like you have to do that because that's what all the other influencers are doing. Just do you boo. Like just be <laughs> yes. do you and the right people will literally find you. Hashtags also, you know, they also work. And then also to trying to, you know, find your community and genuinely like reach out to them and connect with them because that's essentially you know what I did like on a daily basis like I would go on Instagram and I would try to find like other women that I thought would be like a great fit for the glow up and then I would send them a DM and say hey I have this group you know full of all these other influencers that are in sort of like our same like category and we share like real information on like pricing rates this that the other thing we'd love to have you join and like I think that we like message like 20 30 people like every day for like basically since we started and we created this like huge community and from that like that's sort of like how we grew and built real connections and then like when things like fashion week would come about or different things that would happen like different cities we knew somebody in a different city and like we would shoot with them and connect with them and that's sort of like how we um, how I grew. You mentioned the Instagram algorithm changes all the time. You've given us lots of tips on how to go around that. But do you trust anything within Instagram that it serves you? Like the best time to post? Do you follow those pillars through Instagram or do you just do your own thing? I used to um, 
follow that. But now, just because like I'm slowly moving away from like being an influencer full time, I just, I don't really care. I just post whenever. I would just say that, you know, knowing where the majority of your audience is located is actually super useful because you don't want to post up when they're like all sleeping. But I've posted things at like seven o'clock in the morning and they've done really well. And I've posted things at like 10 or 11 o'clock at night and they've done really well. Also too, people aren't always reading the analytics like correctly. So when uh, you go into your analytics and you see the times that your audience is online, that's actually in Pacific Standard Time. So like you need to like do the... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so yeah. that's in like... California time or San Francisco time where, um, you know, Instagram and Facebook are headquartered. So you have to like do that conversion. So, um, and also too, I think that people like, they know what they like and they respond well to what they like. And then the algorithm will like boost your content accordingly. For sure. Cause I see stuff at the top of my feed from two days ago, but it's someone that I like engage with and I like most of their content. Exactly. Is there a third party platform that you use for any of your kind of Instagram scheming? <laughs> like not, not scheming, but like, you know, do you use an, an app to tell you when you should post? Do you use an app to post for you to yeah. plan your calendar? Like do you, are there any apps? So that you the like? apps that post for you, I wouldn't recommend doing that because I think Instagram knows like yeah. that it's like automated. And so they, it does it like it deprioritizes it in the algorithm Years ago, like, and I'm talking like 2016, 2015, there were lots of apps that told you like when you should post, et cetera. But then when Instagram included that as part of the analytics, like people stopped really using them mm-hmm. and it became less useful. But now I just kind of like literally post whenever, whatever I want, whenever I want. And and I think that the algorithm also favors that. Like you'll notice like when people share like announcements, like Coco, you recently got engaged. Like it did phenomenal engagement wise because... When something's good, it's good. Like whether period. you post, yeah, period with a big capital T. So like when something's good, it's good. And the algorithm will just, will boost it accordingly. If an outfit is fire, it's fire. People will like it. If it's not like maybe people like will be lukewarm on it. Like since all of the changes that have happened, like, cause when I first started the Instagram um, feed was cr- chronological. So now it's not even chronological anymore. So like, I think that all of the things that Instagram has done with the algorithm, a lot of people complain about them, but I truly do believe that they're doing these things to make the experience more positive for you and your followers. And I think that if you just forget about, you know, the algorithm and times and all of those things and just focus on what is going to add value to people's lives, what is going to be thumb stopping, like what's going to make people stop and like, hey, like, let me read this. What is going to be savable? What is going to make people save and maybe come back to it later so that they can like reference it, whether it's an outfit or a recipe or whatever. And what is shareable? Shareable content does super well. And we learned that, especially these like past few months with the Black Lives Matter movement and everybody, you know, giving tips and education on, you know, how people can become allies, how people could support the cause. So that shareable information became viral. Like there are literal pages that started like at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement that now have like over a million followers. So if you have something that is going to be valuable and add value in some way to somebody's life, that is going to make them want to share it to their stories or share it with their friends or tell somebody about it. um, That's the best way to grow because the best way to grow is uh, by sharing content that new eyeballs are going to see. New eyeballs outside of, you know, your audience. And the, and the only way that that's going to happen is when people save and share your content. Guys, 
I don't know if anybody else is listening to this podcast, but damn, like Sinead's <laughs> just giving you a roadmap to how to be successful. Um, so do you have a social calendar that you create in advance of your posts or do you just, you know, shoot yeah. from the hip? So I used to use um, Planoly and so I would like plan out like my grid and my feed that way. And I stopped using it recently just because now I just like, I just post when I post now. Um, but I use a preset. So, um, so you'll notice how like influencers, like their whole feed has sort of like the same kind of like filter on it. So I find that that preset sort of ends up being like the common thread through all of my photos so that like one day I'll share like an iPhone photo or one day I'll share like a random, like whatever post, like more like a professional shot, but they all kind of like meld together because um, of the preset. But there are some people that are a little bit more, you know, methodical about like how they post, like every other photo is like a photo with them and like the other photos are like photos, like flat legs. And for some people that works too, because your, you know, your feed is like your resume. So like your last 12 to 15 photos, like that, what people see in those last 12 to 15 photos, that's what they use to decide as to whether they want to follow you or not. So, um, you know, curating your feed to a certain extent definitely does help. But then I will see like meme accounts or like, you know, random accounts that have like crazy engagement <laughs> and like tons of followers and like their feed is like mumbled, jumbled, like it's just, no aesthetic. yeah. So I think that the regular like person, like your average person, like they don't really care about like aesthetic so much, but everyone follows different people for different reasons. So bear that in mind. And then also keep in mind that the vast majority of the people that are seeing your content, they're seeing it in your home feed or they're seeing it in the explore page. They are not seeing it in your grid. But for new eyeballs that do come to your page, that's where the grid comes into play. And like, you know, that's where you're able to sort of like, it's like you're able to like paint a little picture of yourself that people like will help to determine whether they you're worth the follow or not. Very true. People have been oh, people have also gotten like stingy with, with their the follows. <laughs> but they'll visit your page every day and yes. save stuff, but they won't follow you. Okay, okay, we see you. Yes. Um, you seem to be very free-spirited about how you post, what you post. Do you have a balance with organic and sponsored content? I or, try. Yeah, you try because you don't yeah. want to do that back-to-back sponsored. I do the back-to-back. I've done the back-to-back. Like, I've done the back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back <laughs> to the point where it's like, people are like, my followers probably hate me. So, mm-hmm. But um, do you see any consequences for, for that? Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't see no, any consequences. You, people will unfollow you when you post too much sponsored content or where, like, the sponsored content is, like, not, you know, bringing value to them and it, where it's just, like... And also, too, like, so I try not to partner with brands that, you know, I don't use in real life or I wouldn't use in real life. So like if it doesn't come across as as authentic, people will not engage with it. And that also too, you know, if somebody hasn't been recently engaging with like your post, the algorithm also will start showing your content to to that person less. So, um, so yeah, um, I do. So I used to have like a 50-50 rule. But like lately, it was like super difficult to like maintain like the 50-50 editorial to ad ratio. Um, now, like as in like the past, like I would say month or so, I've gotten a lot better. But like there's just certain times where things like are super busy and like you get opportunities and they're all really cool, great opportunities that, you know, I really like and I don't want to say no to. And then I just try to find ways to like speak about them and talk about them and storytell, you know, while incorporating the brand in a way that's not too like, you know, off-putting 
voting. But yeah, so that is like a, a challenge that people face. So once you get to a point where, you know, opportunities are coming your way, um, you do have to make the decision. And and also saying no is okay. And also too, like there's way, like there's lots of like work enough for everybody. So like, if you can't do an opportunity, like send it to somebody who can. Like we use the group for that a lot. So if like an opportunity comes into my inbox and I can't do it, I would share it in the group and like, or recommend like a list of people that would be good so that the brand can go and work with them too. Such collaborative energy. We love it. Thank you. And when those opportunities come your way, how do you determine what to charge? So charging. So so this is where like my background in finance comes into play. I have like little like formulas and strategies that I've, you know, are sort of tried, tested and true, but change also over time. And, you know, they're based on trial and error and the trial and error was done on myself. So, and then also to my, from my background in media. So I knew how people priced traditional media and I tried to think to myself, okay, so Instagram has like sort of like replaced magazines and, um, you know, the way that magazines were priced were based on a CPM. So you, and a CPM is like cost per mill, I think is like what the, the acronym means. But anyway, do you pay a certain price per a thousand readers or per a thousand viewers or subscribers? Uh, so I started to like come up with like little formulas on the Instagram side. So I have something that I call the 4% rule. And it's not a hard and fast rule. It's not an exact science, but it's a great starting point that I recommend that people uh, should implement if they're not sure what to charge. So this assumes that you have, you know, decent engagement. So I would say anything higher than, you know, 4% engagement, uh, you can definitely use the 4% rule. So if you have, say, 100,000 followers, you can charge $4,000 for an Instagram post and then half that for a set of Instagram stories. Now, there are several other things that come into play. So there's usage, there's exclusivity, there's also production, um, there's there's production. So some things like when, you know, there's, if you're creating like a recipe, et cetera. So like if you have to do recipe development or if you have to travel to get to the location in order to shoot the content, uh, if, you know, you are specifically known for and one of a kind for, you know, that specific thing that they're hiring you for. So say like, you, you know, you are the expert in your field, you can charge a premium for that as well. So, but the, a great place to start is the four percent rule. So four percent of your Instagram following, and then half that for a set of stories. If it's video, there's a premium, so you should include a production charge for like the video. I typically recommend a video production charge on top of uh, your Instagram rate of anywhere from like fifteen hundred dollars to three thousand dollars, depending on like how sophisticated the video is. If it's done with like an Instagram, sorry, with a with an iPhone, or if it's done with like an actual like production crew, etc. I think that that's that's pretty good. So there's usage and there's exclusivity that comes into play. So exclusivity, I like to think of exclusivity as like opportunity cost. So say if you're working with a beauty brand and the beauty brand 
brand doesn't want you to work with any competitors for like 15 days before, 15 days after. So they're essentially taking you out of the game for a month. What does that mean to you financially? What are you potentially saying no to? And what income are you potentially losing from saying no to those brands? So for um, a home decor blogger, that might not be a lot. But if you are a lifestyle blogger, that actually that number could be really high. Um, My rule of thumb that I start with um, exclusivity is... I charge my Instagram rate per month of exclusivity. That's the starting point. But again, that is flexible and can change depending on what the category is. If it's like fashion, um, you know, I work with tons of different fashion brands. So one Instagram post per month of exclusivity wouldn't cut it. I would need a lot more than that. In fact, I would probably just try to get them to negotiate the exclusivity or remove the exclusivity altogether from the contract just so that I'm free to be able to, you know, work with whoever. And then maybe like we work something out where that day or like the day before or the day after, I don't post any competitors. So a lot of it comes down to like, you know, common sense. And then also too, there's usage. So where are they going to be using your content? Like, are they going to be boosting it on Facebook? Are they going to be boosting it on Instagram? Are they going to be using it on in-store signage at point of sale? Are they going to be putting it on a billboard? So um, the more eyeballs that are going to be seeing the content that they boost, the more that you, sh- you should be charging them for that. So usage can start, you know, for anything as low as like maybe... a month for boosting up to like $2,500, $3,000, even up to $10,000 a month, um, depending on how big the campaign is and how many eyeballs are going to see that content. And usage is somewhat tied to exclusivity as well, because if, for example, years ago, I was in a Sephora campaign and it was like a pretty big campaign that included billboards and digital ads, etc., Nordstrom or Shoppers Drug Mart Beauty, because they know that this campaign is out in the market, they're not going to reach out to me and want to work with me. So, you know, the the more the usage is on the content that, you know, you're selling to your brands or to the brands that you're working with, um, that could potentially impact your ability to work with other brands as well. So you have to incorporate that into the usage cost as well. Have you found that now that you have over 60,000 followers, that brands are more willing to negotiate with you as before when you maybe had a smaller following that it was kind of like take it or leave it, like they were more in the position of power? Yeah. So before, I think that I was just like happy to be there. I was like, y'all want to work with me? Y'all want to work with me? I was like, okay. So I was just like saying yes to everything. So, um, but then there was like one, like, I think it was like a month in May. It was like, it was like Mother's Day and like spring and like a bunch of things were happening. And it was like, literally, I had like 20 campaigns in one month and I like literally almost had a breakdown. So I was like, okay, so something has to change. A, I probably should increase my rates a little bit and be a little bit more firm and be less willing to negotiate. Say no to a few things. Um, But yeah, so I think that brands are more likely to like ghost you or um, not be willing to negotiate with you if you're replaceable. So like the more replaceable you are, like if you have blonde hair, blue eyes and beach waves, you might want to be a little bit less like, you know, strict on certain things because there's a hundred of you out there. But if you've, you know, got a red afro and freckles and green eyes or something, and like you're kind of like a one of one rarity, then chances are if the brand is coming to you, like you're probably one of the only people that, um, you know, that they can that they can go to. So if they say no, like who else are they going to find with like, you know, red hair and 
freckles and like green eyes and whatever, and that's six foot tall. So um, knowing your value and knowing, you know, where, what your negotiating power is, that's a little bit of trial and error too. And, you know, don't be afraid to ask for more. And, and at the end of the day, there's so many opportunities and so many brands out there and so many agencies with, you know, things that are going on. If an opportunity doesn't come to fruition because you you might've gone a little bit hard at the negotiating table, just learn from it. And so, you know, for the next time, and I had to do that with myself too. And it's okay. There's just more opportunities where that came from. And just knowing, you know, how truly unique you are, it is really the law of supply and demand. So if, you know, there are tons of people that are exactly like you, you probably can't be as aggressive with your rates. But if there are very few people that are like you, then you can probably be a little bit more aggressive with your rates. And your real was very informative over the weekend where you um, gave information that 4% based on your following and what you could charge. Because one of the things I find from working agency side and working influencer side, that there's not a lot of transparency um, between charging. So it's always kind of like this guessing game. So I think it was really great for me to finally see someone just say, listen, charge this. This is a good starting point. But I also did see a clap back in your um, comments, which you responded to very nicely that I enjoyed as well. But but the question there was like, you know, is there a difference between someone who's taking photos on their iPhone or someone's getting something professionally produced? And um, you did say you made assumptions in what you were saying. I just wonder if you could speak on that a little bit. Is there a difference? Like, do you think yeah. that you should always take professional photos or do you think Instagram likes iPhone photos or, you know, with you spoke to presets. So that can kind of level all of the playing field. Yeah. So I would say that, yes, everybody should not be painted with the same brush. All influencers are not created equally. And when it comes to the production value that goes into your content, sometimes that can actually hurt you and hurt the performance of your photo. Some of my iPhone photos are like some of like my best performing content. Um, So yes, the production value should definitely be incorporated into your cost and you should definitely take that into consideration when you're creating the content. But at the end of the day, this is advertising and they're paying for attention. They're paying for eyeballs. They're paying for audience and they're paying for engagement. So whether you have like a whole team of like 10 people that did like a perfect, like a photo shoot and you got your makeup done and your like hair done and like you bought a whole outfit, that's great and I'm happy for you, but it might've been, you know, more effective for you to create a real moment or share a real moment, like maybe a selfie in front of your mirror, depending on what like the... um what the brand is and like what the product is. I've seen some beauty content, beauty collaborations where, and, and, we, and we even see this with our influencers, where they'll, you know, do their own makeup and um, they'll just take like a snap, a little iPhone photo, like in nice lighting and it will perform phenomenally. And that does the job just as much as like hiring a whole team because people are also have gotten smarter about um, content and what is real and what isn't like at the advent of, you know, Instagram and social media. I think that people were like, oh, my God, these influencers, they have these like perfect lives and they like travel <laughs> everywhere and like their homes are perfect and like everywhere they go no one's around and like (laughs) it's just everything's so perfect but um with all the attention you know in the past five years on influencers and influencer life and like how fake it is they can like 
People can see a photo and be like, oh my God, like she totally like went there at like four o'clock in the morning when nobody was there. And like she had a photographer take that and like, you know, nobody wears that, you know, like people can tell. So they are, they're looking at influencer content with a critical eye. So there's been a rise of more like authentic and real moments and sharing real moments. And, and, you know, there's certain opportunities where taking the photo with like the iPhone is probably the, like the better route than like, you know, hiring like a full production team. And sometimes like you go, you got to balance it. It's like a little bit of both. So you touched on this a little bit earlier, but, you know, and you said you sometimes have a hard time saying no. And, you know, you got to the point where you're like, ah, there's too many things. Do you have now after, you know, the crazy month, but do you have a vetting process? And are there things that are non-negotiable for you when working with certain brands? Yeah. So now I pretty much don't really work with a brand if they aren't able to meet my rates just because it's just, I have so much on my plate right now that I just, for me to take time out of my day to, you know, shoot content or go somewhere, um, you have to, I have to be compensated accordingly. Um, So that's one thing. Also, if you were quiet, during the Black Lives Matter movement, or if you did something problematic during the Black Lives Matter movement, that's a deal breaker. And I will probably tell you about it. Other than that, I just truly assess, like, is this something that I would like to use? Is this something like that I would like to do? Like the other day, like we got an opportunity with like for a whiskey brand and my husband's a huge fan of whiskey. So I was like, oh my God, maybe we should do this. Like we could totally like make this work. Sometimes it's about fit. And that's also where I'll compromise on my rate. So if it's like something that like I totally do and use and like this is such a part of me that it's such a natural fit, I'll compromise on my rate because it doesn't feel like work. So yeah, if there's there aren't a ton of deal breakers, but then also too like gifting opportunities, I try, I feel really bad because I'll get stuff, I'll be gifted with things. And like, I just don't always have the opportunity to share them or post them. So um, if there's gifting with like requirements to post, that's usually a deal breaker for me as well. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So you and your husband, you just mentioned, yes. um, started your own boutique agency called Kensington Gray. Mm-hmm. So we know how it began. Yeah. We talked about it, about that earlier, but how is it going? I know that you, you started with the mission to represent underrepresented women. Yeah. Um, and in the mix of this Black Lives Matter explosion... Uh, a lot of amazing things have happened, but you've been working on them before. I know that there, there's a movie in the works. I know that you've produced um, t- television shows. 
So how is it going? How is Kensington Grey going? So it's going really, really well. First of all, working with your husband sucks. <laughs> I'm just, just being She's honest. I love him, but he drives me nuts and um, vice versa. But it works really well, like just on the business side, because, you know, I have like a C-suite level executive, you know, working side by side with me that I would probably have to pay a lot of money for if I were to hire him like normally. And he understands me, understands the business. We both have like a history in in media. So, you know, he just gets it. But especially like during COVID and like we were both working from home, like, you know, not having like time apart and breaks, like it's just, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot. (laughs) But how is Kensington Gray going? It's going extremely well. So You're right. Like we always were about elevating black voices and, uh, you know, amplifying um, influencers from groups that are underrepresented, whether it be LGBTQ, whether it be plus size, whether it be, you know, black women in general. So when the Black Lives Matter movement happened, it was like we've already been doing this. So like, we were just like, we embraced it. You know, our company, you know, released a statement just like in support of it. And we did the pull up for change uh, challenge. Um, and um, our influencers benefited all of them tremendously. So all a lot of them, they, they grew exponentially during the Black Lives Matter movement because a lot of other influencers were sharing pages of Black women that you should follow. So a lot of them, you know, some of them even doubled their following. It was crazy the amount of growth that they experienced. And then brands that, you know, weren't paying attention to them before all of a sudden were like, hey, like we want to work with you. And there were some brands that we actually had difficult conversations with and we declined because of like, it seemed like what they were doing was performative. But um, you know, we are very, we take pride in, you know, our, the influencers that, you know, are assigned to our roster. They were already all very, very successful. And even during, you know, COVID, because pre-Black Lives Matter, it was like the whole, you know, there was like the downturn in the market because of COVID and nobody really knew what was happening, but they were all thriving and still doing well during COVID. So they were already pretty busy pre-BLM. And then during BLM, it, they kind of just like blew up. And uh, and now they're at a point where they're able to, be, you know, pick and choose who they want to work with. Um, it's great though now where, that we have the attention and of, you know, some brands that maybe didn't want to work with us before. Um, uh, an area that has been challenging for a lot of influencers to break into, Black women specifically, and Black influencers is a luxury space. So that's something that we are focusing more on. So, you know, we have partnerships now with you know, Farfetch and um, with Netaporte and some of our influencers have done stuff with Prada and other, you know, brands in the luxury space. So that's something that, you know, we're really super excited about for sure. A, a bunch of, you know, really, really cool projects. Like we always thought it was like cool to be black, but like <laughs> now everybody else is starting to like, you know, catch on. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've been benefactors of that on, on the business side. And so that's something that, you know, we're super excited about. And um, we don't see the momentum slowing down or changing anytime soon. I think that um, it's really, really awesome to see like in, in some of the brands that we work with, you know, both 
Um, and the agencies that we work with, you know, both pe- members of the BIPOC community and non-members of the BIPOC community with like their signature saying Black Lives Matter, like in their like work email, I'm like, you go girl, mm-hmm. like that's so dope. <laughs> and like taking off days like Juneteenth and and things like that. So like we were seeing that commitment there and um, we're seeing, you know, steps being made towards long-term transformative change. So uh, it's it's super exciting and it's really great for, you know, it's great to be a black woman in any industry right now. So and we have like 10 black women that, you know, we work with very, very intimately. So it's it's been really, really good. We love good news. We need good news. Basically. basically crushing it. In other words, I think you've touched on this, but I am interested to know how has your perspective changed as an influencer and an agency co-founder during COVID? And is there like a major takeaway that you can share with the community? Like, So now I, I just really want to like make people's days better. Like I want people to like see something that I share and like feel good. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't care because, and it's great because we we have the agency and the agency is doing really well. So I can start to like say no to a lot of the stuff that was like taking up my time that felt like more work on the influencer side so that I could do more stuff like the Canadian Black Standard, be more involved in the glow up and supporting other um, influencers that are, you know, coming up and just creating content and sharing content um, that is informative and educational and just doing more like real shit, like just not the like fake shit. You know what I mean? Like, and I feel like we're all guilty of it to a certain extent just because of the platform and the nature of the platform. So that's how my perspective has changed. Like before I would like, everything was, you know, well thought out and just super curated. And I still do believe in curation. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. There's, I think that there's a, bit of like an online feng shui element where <laughs> things, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting things to look pretty and be pretty and stuff like that. But I just, just crave a little bit more realness and authenticity. And I think the past, I would say year, I made a point to try to share more. So I shared my struggles with my marriage. I shared um, my struggles with financial stability, you know, through my 20s and how I overcame that. I shared the challenges that I had with making the decision to quit my job and like become an influencer full time. So I found that those and and also, too, in terms of growing storytelling and, and being honest about, you know, the struggles that you're facing, that's also something that I feel like was super huge with respect to growth. Like me sharing my financial story, um, I think that I gained like thousands and thousands of followers because of that. And not because that was the intention, that was never the intention, but I just, you know, spoke about something that resonated with a lot of women and that they could relate to. So all of a sudden they relate to you Um, and then they follow you and they're more invested in your content as a result of that. So being honest about, you know, things like that. And then also being honest about my relationship, like that it's, it's not perfect. Like working with your husband, there are pros and there are cons. And then that's cons with a capital C. Um, just, you know, just being like real. People want like real people. And, and that's another reason why the, the, some of the influencers that are the most successful are ones that are active on other platforms because 
other platforms I find lend well or give people more of like a, a view of who you really are. So Twitter, you, you know, have to like speak your thoughts and you have to be, you know, creative with like your prose and with your words. YouTube, like there's no filter. Like you got to like, you can't fake who you are. Like I'm sure there's people who probably go to certain lengths, but like that's who you really are. That's what you really look like. It's video content. People get to know you and like your personality. TikTok, it's the same. Like you can show, you know, if you're you're comedic, if you're funny. And I think that that's people will engage with and like who they really like in real life. Whereas with Instagram, because it's primarily like photography, there's still that like a bit of a veil and a wall there. So like those other platforms allow people to sort of lift the veil. And if they found you from those other platforms, they're like more ride or die. <laughs> so, so yeah. You spoke about having to have tough conversations with brands. Yeah. Are there any brands right now that you're really loving what they're doing in, in respect to Black Lives Matter yeah. and that they really made the change or or are you just they've been doing it for a really long time and you ride for them? Is there anybody yeah. any standouts? Sephora is definitely one. It's a brand that I found that has been um, inclusive um, with respect to, you know, their branding and with who they include in ads. Um, internationally, um, you know, they have a lot of women in um, positions of power. Um, they also, you know, hire a lot of minorities as well, like not just on the front lines, but internally. Um and uh, I love that they were one of the first major corporations to um, take the 15% pledge that Aurora James uh, started, um, who's a fellow Canadian who lives in the U.S. And, and they so they made a pledge to make sure that 15% of the brands they carried are either Black-owned or um, owned by members of the Black, um, Indigenous, or people of color category, which I think that's that's going to make a huge impact. Um, so yeah, I really, you know, I love Sephora. And then also too, I just love how they brace, embrace different people. So mm -hmm. like when I go into the Sephora, like, you know, there will be, um, you know, someone who might be non-gender conforming, you know, right at the front, like greeting you, like, hi, how are you doing? And it's like, it normalizes people being different. And they've always, I think, been, been at the forefront of that. So that's for sure, for sure one. There's a few, you know, that have maybe not gotten it right a couple of times, but like made, you know, commitments to getting it better. Like H&M, like they've had a couple of hiccups here and there, but they, are, you know, have been truly committed to doing right by their audience and doing right by, you know, their customers and their consumers. So, yeah. Love to hear it. And so much success, but with that also comes taking some L's. Yeah. Has there been a point in your life where there was a failure or a loss where you felt like you were never going to be at the point in your career that you are now? I'm a Pisces. I'm on the cusp of Aquarius and I've always been a dreamer. And um, it's crazy. I always knew I would be kind of where I am now. I always dreamt dreamt that for sure. But when this is like a huge but, um, I've like messed up and screwed up so many times. Like where I was like, oh my god, like what am I gonna do? Like like how am I gonna get out of this? But like I always knew somehow that I would be able to get out of it. So um, so there's my like in my twenties when. 
I left my job just because, and I didn't have a plan. So I left my job because I was like, I'm going to do what women want full time. Like I'm hot. I'm popping right now. Like I'm good. Like I just made $20,000 next last month. Who knows what I'm going to make next month, but that's a lot of money. And if I make $20,000 this month, I could do that like every month, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, cash flow realities you know, hit me in the face. And um, I realized like, oh my God, like, I think I'm going to need to get a job now. Like, I can't, like, I just, like, I thought I was going to be like this entrepreneur. I was going to be like Oprah. And, <laughs> and and now like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to pay my rent next month? So that failure, that helped me like understand the importance of like fiscal responsibility, understanding cash flow, saving before you quit a job. Um, so all of the things that I learned from the things that I did wrong with my first foray into entrepreneurship informed all of the decisions that I made with my second foray into uh, entrepreneurship. So everything I did with What Women Want, like I think prepared me for the success that I'm, you know, experiencing now. Not to say that like something, you know, it bad might not happen in the future. Like we could have like, I could have left my job and started a restaurant and then I would have been really screwed. You know what I mean? Like there's who, like there's, you never know when your time might come. Um, but, you know, saving and having like a bit of a nest egg that was super important to me. So like, that was one of the great things like about working at Rogers, like they had like an automatic like savings plan where you automatically could put money into their stocks and then they matched it. And then I was contributing to my RSPs, et cetera. So that actually helped me be, being able to A, pay off like the de- my debt and then B, um, you know, buy a home with Sean and doing the influencer stuff and, you know, and saving my money uh, while doing the influencer stuff, but then also having like a full-time income as well allowed me to, that was like my business loan to myself. So yeah, so definitely like the failures from my 20s like informed and educated me on how not to do things like a certain way now. And, um, but I, but I will say, and I don't know if this is like stupidity or if it's just, I don't know. I've never, ever thought I was going to not achieve success. I just always knew that I was like, I'm going to make it somehow. (laughs) My thing in my twenties was like, I'd be like, money comes and goes. Like, I'll just like pay it all off when I get my book deal or like my TV show. Like, but those things didn't happen. I had to like pay it off, like the hard working (laughs) way. But, you know, now like. In the, I'm working on a, you know, a show now and like all those things that like I imagine, like they come to life, but maybe not in the way you envision them, but they do. And I, so I, I really believe in like in visualization and believing yourself and confidence. Um, yeah. Just to be clear, none of that is stupidity. That no. sounds like smart manifesting opportunities yes. from a master manifester. We love yes. a manifestation. We are there for that. Always. We definitely are. So we kind of talked about what Kensington Gray is, how it's doing now. But what are the plans for Kensington Gray in the future? We are making some changes internally to um, move into more of like a full service agency. So just because of, and it's just sort of has organically happened with requests that have come from some of our clients on, you know, how to like boost things digitally or how to like, you know, um, put together like a, 
you know, full fleshed out like digital plan. Um, we're also um, going to probably be uh, creating like a separate kind of like celebrity division as well. We just signed Kenya Moore, which is super Ooh, exciting. That's amazing. Um, and we have Latoya Forever, who's also, she's on the Real Housewives of Atlanta. She's also on our roster. Um, and celebrities have different needs. And they also, their feeds and their pages and their content looks a lot different than like a full-time influencers does. So, um, so yeah, so we are probably going to be moving into that. And we're not sure if that's going to be like a, a Kensington Gray prestige division or like a, like a, you know what I mean? We're not sure if it's going to all be under Kensington Gray or if it's going to be separate, but, um, but yeah, so we're thinking that that's probably going to be one of the areas that we move into. And we're just kind of, kind of, you know, go with the flow. We want to continue to grow. Like we are now a team of five and um, our campaign management team, they just interviewed another, uh, did an interview yesterday. And I think they have a second interview with another person to join the campaign management team. We just want to continue to grow. Like we want to be the same as, or just as powerful as um, our counterparts in the industry. So, and they, a lot of them are, you know, huge agencies with like 50 or 60 employees and and stuff like that. So I think that we want to get there. Get it, Shanae. (laughs) Get it. (laughs) A lot to look forward to. And I wish we could keep talking, but we may even have to do a part two in 2021 because we could just be here all day with you. Honestly, thank you so much for joining us, Shanae. Thank you for having me. You can find Shanae on the gram at Toronto Shay. And you can keep up with us by following at Coco and Co. That's C-O-W-E on the gram. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 